Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean Stewart, great to be in conversation with you today, Friday, the 23rd of September. Hey, guys. Great to catch up, guys. Well, at the Hub here, we like to follow national affairs, national politics, um, parliament back in session, the first kind of uh, flashes of swords drawn in the House of Commons across the uh, the desk of the uh, Sergeant of Arms and the mace. We had drama, Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau appearing. In this case, the first instance of Pierre Polyev as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Sean, what was your take of... Um, their debate, their interaction is, do you see some outlines here of, you know, tactics and strategies in terms of how these two leaders are going to face off against each other in the months to come? Yeah, just a couple of quick points to, to kick things off. The, the first is, um, you know, one gets a sense that Trudeau sees in Polyev the most formidable opponent that he's faced to date as prime minister. Um, and that there are is a degree of animus between the two. Um, Polyev's um, lines in the past have been pretty sharp and cut pretty deep. And so, you know, I'm not surprised if they've left kind of lasting scars that um, the prime minister is going to sort of draw upon. And I, what I think is going to be a bit of a kind of alpha male um, dance um, across the floor of the House of Commons in the, in the coming weeks and months. The second just substantive point I'd raise is um, while the government has uh, announced some measures in response to uh, rising inflation or high inflation, the Conservatives this week have really beat the drum on um, the on the scheduled payroll tax increases um, coming into effect in January, and more importantly, the scheduled increase in, in the carbon tax. Um, you know, arguing in favor of tax reductions is um, you know, kind of sustenance for conservatives. And it's an issue for which I think the government is a bit vulnerable. And, and so uh, I think between now and the end of December, um, we're going to hear a lot about these tax increases coming into effect in January. It'll be interesting to see if the government holds the line or ultimately tries to find a way uh, to suspend them or reduce them um, or whatever. So Stuart, I want to get your thoughts on what you saw in the House of Commons this week, but also just your take on, you know, the the febrile state of um, the Ottawa kind of political class and, you know, hand-wringing about the possibility of a fall election on the basis that this prime minister is fired up by Pierre Polyev, that um, he feels that uh, as many leaders do in these situations, it's unique, but hey, this is how they roll. They're kind of like, only I can defeat this guy. So it's got to be beat me and it's got to be um, an election before, I assume, 
you know, the economic turndown recession or whatever happens, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of 2023 kind of gets a hold of the Canadian electorate. Yeah, I think that, you know, if I were laying any bets, I would say it's not going to happen. But if if that were to happen, that means that they're expecting something pretty deep in terms of a recession. They're expecting bad news and sustained bad news. Um, if you get, if you look at what I could consider one of the better case scenarios, which is that we have either a soft landing or something just below a soft landing where we're all arguing about whether it was a recession or not, like that gives you a year six months to a year of kind of bad economic news and then this sort of hopeful climb out of it. And I, if I were Justin Trudeau, I would be looking at that hopeful climb as, you know, the, the road to positivity and maybe re-election. Um, but, you know, if they're ready to go, like, I think you should not underestimate how much he doesn't like Pierre Polyev too. I think that's a fair point. Um, and, you know, I remember back in the day, the, the Wild Rose PC battles when it was Alison Redford versus Danielle Smith, where there was serious dislike between those two parties and those two leaders. And that bubbled up into scandals that actually, you know, made news and that affected governance. So I like, you know, there was some chirping today about Pierre Polyev uh, congratulated Justin Trudeau on coming home to gas up the private jet. Um, that is the dilapidated plane that he flies in, which still has ashtrays in it, by the way. It's not <laughs> it's not a private jet. Um, and then Trudeau hit him back with the crypto thing that, you know, Jean Charest was using in the uh, leadership race, talking about how crypto's down. So that kind of needling, you're not going to see it right now, but like six months from now, the eyes are going to start twitching because they're going to be so tired of seeing each other and they're going to be so annoyed at each other. Um, and this kind of thing actually does bubble up every now and then. I think in recent history, this is probably the bubbliest it's going to be just because these two guys are so different from each other. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, Chairman Powell in the United States this week kind of took the landing gear off the plane and, uh, you know, taxied us up or set in a glide path for something that doesn't look like too much of a soft landing anymore. Another big 75%, a 75 point uh, hike in the United States. They're talking about it like a terminal rate of early 2023 of, you know, four and a half percent on the overnight borrowing weight. And I think we know that Canada for a whole host of reasons kind of has to follow the fed. If we don't, you know, our dollar, uh, really the loonie gets winged and we start importing a lot of inflation and you can see the loonie down significantly uh, this week as the Fed hikes and the US dollar, king dollar crushes, you know, currencies around the world. So I'm, I'm increasingly, you know, skeptical that a soft landing is in the mix. And, I'm, and that makes me think that, I don't know, Sean, that the political terrain may be more uncertain than we assume right now what's your take you think on the poly of camp would they would they welcome a fall election i you know i don't know i mean the conventional wisdom is you know you want some time to be there you want to kind of introduce yourself to canadians but you know a lot of momentum coming out of this leadership race maybe in fact a fall election is not a bad idea because you're not kind of getting the tires kicked uh too extensively by the canadian public uh the Conservative Party coffers, you know, stuff to the gills in terms of the ability to fund a campaign. Um, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, the Polyev team is also battle tested. And, um, you know, the, the kind of core organization there is, you know, ready to go with the, the press of a button in a lot of ways. Um, I, I 
agree with Stuart that it's probably less likely than more likely. Let me just put one fact on the table, uh, which suggests that if for some reason um, these different parties inadvertently found themselves in an election campaign, um, I wouldn't bet against Polyev. If you secured a 30-year fixed mortgage on a $600,000 home at 2.6% interest in uh, 2021, you now have the same monthly mortgage payment as someone that just bought a $392,000 home at today's 6.2% interest rate. So there's a lot of people across the country, Stuart and Rudyard, who are either on variable mortgages or their five-year fixed rate is coming up pretty soon. And they're finding that the mortgage that used to cost them X is now calling the cost of them X plus. And that plus is going to come out of their discretionary budget, whether it's going on a trip or putting their kids in sports or, you know, buying a six pack at the beer store or whatever. Um, you know, whether we have a recession or not, I think in some ways is more of a debate for economists and, and, and others. I think for all intents and purposes, people are increasingly feeling um, um, uh, some uh, pressure points uh, from from the economy, and and in that sense, uh, I'm not sure um, um, that the Polyev camp would be all that disappointed um, if they went into an election campaign sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's a good point, and in some ways, you know, Joe Biden is going to give us a trial run here, right? You've got an incumbent um, left of center government. Uh, who's going to be going up against an electorate who, yeah, a little more restive, to put it politely, than the Canadian uh, average you know, voter, but still a lot of the same issues, you know, high inflation, um, you know, a leader whose popularity numbers like Trudeau's have you know, declined um, since, since the last uh, election. You know, do you think the Liberals look at things like the U.S. midterms um, I always am struck to the extent that Trudeau is increasingly the last man standing kind of of the, of the, you know, the generation of political leaders that came up through the mid, the mid teens of this, you know, century, you go through the list, they're all gone. Uh, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, um, Angela Merkel, um, Donald Trump, you know, uh, he's he and Macron um, and Victor Orban are the, are the, you know, the last men hanging on. Yeah, I, I think if the liberals are trying to take anything from what's happening in the South, they'll be looking at the Roe v. Wade decision seems to have injected life into the Democratic campaign that wasn't there before. Yeah. And I think if you're a liberal in Canada, you're thinking, how can we crowbar abortion into the election campaign in a way that it really has no right to be? And you know that they'll try to do that because I think that's one of their great uh, hopes to get people moving on their side. And they're seeing that happening south of the border. So um, I, I think when you look at what happens in the U.S., you know, that's pretty normal for a new president to get smacked in the midterms. Um, but the one difference this year is that there's more activity on the left than there would have normally have been. We can't have a conversation, though, Rudyard, about the return to Parliament without talking about the fact that, um, as Stuart uh, sets out in a new um, article for The Hub, uh, Canada is, a, is an outlier um, in the sense that we remain um, the only kind of major jurisdiction around the world that is using a hybrid parliament or a virtual parliament uh, instead of in-person sittings. Uh, as Stuart, I think, um, shows, uh, we're even an out, the federal government is even an outlier 
amongst um, the, the provinces, many of which for a while suspended in-person sittings, um, but have been back um, sitting in person for a long time. Maybe I'll just put it to you, you know, two-part question. First, um, you know, what do you think the kind of consequences are in terms of accountability and so on um, that the government is able to answer questions over Zoom as opposed to face-to-face? -face? And secondly, in some ways, more importantly, you know, at the Hub, we've been making the case that uh, all things being equal, we got to get back to the office, get back to work, because there are um, economic and social benefits to being together. But it's pretty hard to make that case when our federal politicians themselves are um, participating in question period, you know, in their shorts or whatever, um, sitting sitting at home or at the yeah. beach or. Well, let's hope let's hope they're sitting down because we've had some incidents where they <laughs> stood up prematurely and uh, the world has not been the wiser for it. Look, I'll, I'll defer to Mike Chong, the MP who was on with you this week on the Hub Dialogues, did an excellent conversation. I think setting out you know some of the real again accountability issues that um and the lack of socialization the lack of uh the ability for mps of different parties hey they still do talk to each other people they still do you know in some cases try to work on led you know bipartisan legislation uh that hub dialogue is on the site now terrific uh listen great interview sean uh, on that i think the the bigger issue though when i look at this this whole topic, and we've been digging into it the last couple of weeks with some great reader feedback to what we're calling our empty office series, is a you know a story that struck me today out of British Columbia about um, you know cancer, uh, acute cancer care um, being under uh, under serviced, under provision because they they can't get workers into fill those posts. I mean, you're talking about people putting chemotherapy IVs into patients' arms. And I just, at what point, I don't know, like at what point do policymakers wake up and, under, and like just understand that if you are creating an environment where a significant portion of the population no longer has to physically go to work to earn a living and can sit in front of a laptop to earn a wage and, you know, great for them. I'm not you know, denying people's right to do that, but understand the disequilibrium that that creates in the economy and the disincentives for recruiting and retaining people in physical work settings. So at some point, like there is no free lunch, you know, I just go back to, there's no free lunch in economics. At a certain point, you either have to understand that you're going to have to pay different wages or create different incentives to get those cancer workers into BC hospitals to service those patients. Or I would say you've got to look at some, frankly, some disincentives for people who are choosing in many instances to stay at home. Um, you know, are there ways to look at that in terms of the, you know, taxation and, you know, worker policy and office policy on an individual company case by case basis? I just worry that if we go deep down this road and we're doing it already in parliament of just allowing this new normal to become the normal, you're going to have disequilibrium. You're going to have dislocation in the labor market in unintended ways that could have very, very, I think, profound consequences as we're seeing for cancer patients in British Columbia. I mean, it doesn't get more serious than that, Sean. Yeah. Um I think there's, I couldn't agree more. And I would just say, um, 
we just recorded a, a, an episode of Hub Dialogues with Stanford University professor Jeffrey Cohen, um, who's an expert on the subject of belonging. Um, that episode will be up on the site in the next week or two. And um, he describes Rudyard and Stewart uh, a, a belonging crisis in um, modern society that um, people increasingly feel um, attenuated and isolated and that that manifests itself in really serious uh, public health and, and mental health uh, consequences. And so, you know, I, I just can't help but think, guys, that um, we're, we're so focused on some of the upsides associated with working from home that we're going to make this sort of bet. And the consequences of that bet won't manifest itself for some time, um, but we won't be able to reverse them either, you know? Um, and, and so in, in an era in which people are desperate and yearning for belonging, um, you know, it seems to me now is not the time to be pursuing a kind of pretty radical social experiment and completely transforming the way um, in, in which we work. And, and maybe just to kind of go full circle, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, that starts with our federal parliament. And uh, thanks for mentioning the, the conversation with Michael Chong. I agree. I thought it was um, excellent. He set out a whole host of reasons in which, or a whole host of ways, rather, in which um, hybrid parliament um, is making it pretty hard for the opposition parties to hold the government accountable to, in fact, do the job that we've elected them to do. Um, and, you know, one hopes that it helps to create uh, a, a bit of momentum um, that ultimately puts um, the, the government and the new Democrats who've resisted a return to in-person sittings um, on their, their back foot and, and enables us to get back to our MPs at work doing the job that we elected them to do. Here, here. Well, look, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to try not to blow up this podcast, but we are going to talk about a teacher who made international news this week. Um, uh, students uh, sharing with the media photographs of a uh, a teacher um, walking around with very large prosthetic breasts uh, in the school. Some people saying this is an overt uh, kind of active sexualization on this person's part that um, creates an unsafe uh, environment for these young people at the school. Others pushing back strongly against that. We're going to get into it, not for this kind of sensationalism, dare I say, the titillation of the debate. We're instead going to try to, I think, unpack some of the, the cultural debates, the very real cultural debates this raised. So stay tuned and we'll see if this podcast still survives at the end of the half hour. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. We wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to the Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries but we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via Per Diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Okay, we are back here at the Hub Roundtable. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, 
on the second half of the show, guys, I take a little bit of a calculated risk here. You know, people could kind of blame us for sensationalism. And that's really like the opposite of what the hub is about. But there was a story this week that captured my attention, yours too. I think a lot of Canadians about a, a teacher at a school outside of uh, Toronto, I believe in uh, Halton uh, Township, the Halton region, who um, video shared by students of uh, this individual, um, a biological male who's transitioning or is transgendered. I'm always confused on the nomenclature here, but nonetheless, walking around with very large uh, prosthetic uh, breasts with kind of prominent uh, nipples uh, coming through what looks to be fairly, um, not transparent, but uh, not opaque uh, clothing. And um, Sean, it, you know, when you make Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, you've got your 15 minutes of fame. I, you know, I feel for this individual. It's probably not the attention that they wanted, um, but it has raised a series of kind of questions about what is appropriate. Um, and I would say not just what's appropriate in schools, but what is appropriate when we gather together in places of work? We were just talking about work in the last segment in Parliament and elsewhere. What are the boundaries that we can expect to? conform to? What are the normative horizons that we can legitimately assert without, I guess, being perceived to unfairly discriminate uh, or denigrate uh, different groups and members in our society? Yeah, I think that's a great framing, uh, Rudyard, for, uh, because as you say, you know, our goal here is not to um, sensationalize this particular case. It, it's really to sort of understand what are the the kind of social and um, uh, cultural um, dynamics um, that we're kind of working through in a pluralistic society uh, um, and a society that is um, kind of reckoning with um, you know, new acceptance of uh, questions of gender expression and, and, and gender identity. And, um, you know, as we work through those issues um, and, and how to handle them, in particular contexts like a school, um, there's bound to be, um, you know, strong views uh, uh, kind of across the the spectrum, so to speak. Um, you know, I, 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 I reason why I think this particular case, though, is worthy of conversation at uh, the Hub Roundtable, is because I, I, there's in a lot of ways, uh, Roger and Stuart. The three of us live in a world um, in which I think people are um, acceptance and understanding and even um, familiarity with these types of cases of gender expression, gender identity are reasonably common, or at least, um, or, or ones in which people um, are, are genuinely comfortable. But I remember back in late August, the National Post ran a, a large scale poll that showed that most of the rest of the country hasn't quite um, encountered a lot of these kind of new and emerging issues. You know, if you don't work in a university, if you don't work in a large corporation, if you don't work in parts of the mainstream media, um, you, you know, your day-to-day -day life may not find you kind of encountering these major um, cultural trends. You know, just, just one example from that poll, something like 90% of Canadians don't put their pronouns in their emails. Um, and yet 
I suspect like if you're like me, most of the people you interact with or not an insignificant, insignificant share do. And so I guess that's a long way of saying, you know, the reason why I think this case is notable is, is for two, two reasons. The first is, you know, it's an example of society trying to kind of work through the trade-offs between enabling gender expression and gender identity. On the other hand, as you say, uh, Rudyard, um, you know, uh, imposing some general expectations around behavior and dress code and so on in, in, in public institutions. But the second is, I, I think this case is going to have a lot of resonance and salience, because if you're a kind of quote unquote ordinary Canadian, you may be encountering a lot of these kind of new and emerging cultural um, issues for the first time. Um, and, and for that reason, I think it, it probably is a bigger issue um, than people may realize. Thanks. Uh, thanks for those words, uh, Sean. So to pass the hand grenade over to you, Stuart, um, my point would be to build on what Sean said, just, you know, and I, I don't want to think of this in some kind of, you know, normative, overly normative way, but you know, as an ordinary Canadian, when you walk into an office and you go to your place of work, you generally people, you expect people to comport and to dress themselves according to a spectrum of behavior. But that spectrum, let's face it, is not, is not infinite. In fact, maybe in some workplaces, it's quite defined. You have to put a uniform on. Um, you maybe have to wear your hair a certain way. There's all kinds of you know, prescriptions. Uh, many office places would not conscience people swearing or using you know, vulgarity in the office place. That could be uh, the subject for you know, censure, uh, something that goes into your employment record. And here we have an individual in a school of all places, which you, know, you could say you might argue is it should be a more uh, sensitive or uh, more kind of attuned environment to, uh, again, how far people are acting out of a, a spectrum of normal behavior. Because generally you want to present to kids, I assume, adult teachers who, who don't distract from the purposes and techniques of education. Here you have an individual who's gone so far beyond anything that would be acceptable, let's say, in any corporate workplace in Canada, yet the school board issues a statement in virtue, you know, complete support of this person and, and almost a guise of some kind of threatening language as if to, to, uh, to come how limit this person or to, to ask them to change their, their dress, their comportment um, is to invite a charge under the Ontario, you know, Human Rights Act under the under the tribunal, under the commission or whatever it's caused. I mean, why, Stuart, in this case, do we have just this huge discrepancy to me, like a surprising discrepancy between what seems to be allowed in schools versus what's allowed in any normal workplace in the country? Yeah, I'll, the way that I like to think about this, I'll tie it together with three points that I think kind of lead to where we are now. One is that I'm constantly surprised at how trans issues dominate our society in the discourse um, out of all proportion to how much they're actually impacting our lives. Um, it's a very small percentage of people, but it's just so much of the culture war right now. I think it's out of proportion. Um, the second thing is that this is one of those issues where if you look at this, is this a battle for 
trans rights or is this one person to use a british phrase taking the piss and i think that that needs to be differentiated and that the other part of this is that this is one of those issues this happens a lot um on this topic which is that if you were to get most progressives you know in a private chat and say listen what do you think of this they would say this is crazy and I think like many of my friends would say that, but there's no way in hell that they would say that in public. And I think that that is kind of the dominant theme uh, that's going along here. And then if you look at the people in charge, these are risk averse people who are trying desperately just to make this go away and to not get in trouble and not to look like a bigot or to have a Twitter mob come after them. They're not doing what they think is right. They're doing what they think will make the least amount of waves. And then the third point that I would make is that my impression of the, you know, trans struggle for rights is that if you are a trans woman, you would hope to be treated the same way as a woman. And if a woman came dressed like that with a prosthetic uh, breast thing on and like revealing clothing, I'm pretty sure they would be censured. I think they would be sent home possibly. And I think maybe we've kind of lost perspective when we're going beyond that, but really it's because there's a real paralysis from many of our elites on this issue where, you know, the thing that they want to say that's sort of common sense to them, they just can't because they know that the social implications for them or even the career implications for them would be devastating. Um, so, you know, this is what it leads to working at the end Tucker Carlson uh, for this kind of stuff. I, can I just say, Rudyard, um, you know, just a ton of insight there from Stuart, who was clearly better prepared to handle this question than than we were. Um, uh, the only other the only other set of implications worth putting on the table is that we have a conservative government in the province. Um, and, it, you know, so far, the government, as far as I can tell, has sought to distance itself from the issue and, and for all intents and purposes has um, devolved responsibility for communications and even ultimately determining how to how to handle it to the to the board level. I'm not sure that's sustainable. I, I think we'll see in the coming days increasing pressure on the Ford government to to take a position. Um, and um, given its voter coalition um, and the kind of preferences of its voters um, um, more generally, it'll, it'll be difficult, it seems to me, um, to stay out of the fray. I guess I would just come back to um, a, a point that I, I made earlier, which is to say, um, you know, as our society works through these types of questions, um, you know, there's obviously a need for empathy and um, and, and all the rest. Um, but uh, I think Stuart is right um, that the best way to kind of handle these cases is to commit ourselves, recommit ourselves to the principle of of equal treatment and you know what this individual seems to be seeking um in their behavior and presentation um is something beyond what um, we would expect um from men or women and i just think as a general rule of thumb if you kind of commit yourself to the principle of equal treatment you know more often than not um you'll be guided in, in the right direction and um and i think um that the, the implicit kind of expectation of unequal treatment is precisely why uh, Tucker Carlson and others have, you know, kind of seized on on this particular case. Well, I mean, let's also, I think, dedicate ourselves, especially, you know, in service of our children to professionalism, that 
you just simply as a professional, you don't show up to work dressed like that. Um, you wouldn't show up to work. And I, I don't think the person would be allowed in the building if they showed up to work with a giant prosthetic penis stuffed in their pants. Okay. So, I mean, there, there's just such, there's, I'm sorry, I just reach a certain point of frustration where the bizarreness is just, it's so bizarre, but no one speaks of it. I mean, it truly is an emperor with no clothes kind of syndrome. And at a certain point, you know, I, you think Doug Ford is about, if anything, is about straight talk. You'd think that somebody would just have the courage to come out and say what is on the minds of a, and, and this is not a discriminatory sentiment towards this individual. It's simply a sentiment about professionalism and standards in a sector where that should be a given, which is our educational system, our public educational system. And what I worry, because I can see it already, you know, through the, the pandemic is that many parents are opting out of the public system because they feel that it, you know, the unions uh, used COVID shamelessly at various points during uh the pandemic to keep schools closed and to keep kids in remote learning. There have been constant threats of, of strikes, which have similarly demoralized uh, parents. And, you know, I think to myself, you know, what is the future of a province if, if people on mass begin to turn away from public education, public education is one of the kind of vital, you know, mixing, pots of a pluralistic multicultural society that has the highest legal rates of immigration in the world. This is an incredible resource, cultural resource that we have that we need to husband and care for, and it needs to be treated with respect. And I'm sorry, when a person behaves so outside of the bounds of simple professionalism that would be required of anybody, regardless of their gay, straight, man, woman, black, white, transgendered or not. And the administration, the minister of education of the province has nothing to say about this. Come on, come on, people. Okay, I've had my rant sort. I have to have one every show. You know that about me. Yeah. We Do you have anything you want to add to this? <laughs> I, I mean- I may have blown myself up. I think you guys have limped over the line. There's just a few <laughs> shrapnel wounds as a grenade went off in my lap. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question is, um, are we saying something that people will not along with or that they'll be offended by? And I think that is the real question here is my feeling is that a lot of people are nodding along. Okay, good. Guys, uh, as always, a good discussion. Uh, let's do this again next Friday. Enjoy your weekend. And uh, yeah, cooler weather. Uh, it's coming, guys. Winter. Uh, you know it. You don't want to say it. It's out there. It's waiting. The countdown's on. So enjoy these, these last few uh, weekends uh, as we head into the autumn. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director 
of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues. It's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.